Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week on the show, we're joined by Dana Settle, co-founder of Graycroft, founded in 2006 to invest in areas outside of Silicon Valley, and specifically in New York and Los Angeles. Today, the firm has over $2 billion in assets under management with over 60 employees and has invested in companies such as Bumble, Scopely, Plated, and Maker Studios. This was a really special episode where we unpacked all of the components of firm building, including team development, fundraising, investment decision-making, and evolving to changing market dynamics. I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Dana, and let's get right to it. This episode is being brought to you by Grasshopper Bank. Privately owned and headquartered in New York City, Grasshopper Bank is built to serve the business and innovation economy. As a client-first digital bank, Grasshopper combines technology and years of industry expertise to provide clients with the best-in-class banking experience. Grasshopper's digital solutions are tailored for venture capital and private equity firms, startups, and small businesses. In addition, they also work closely with fintech-focused banking-as-a-service and commercial API banking platforms. Serving clients globally, Grasshopper provides flexible, firm-focused lending solutions as well as dedicated relationship managers committed to meeting the unique needs of funds and companies alike. Grasshopper is a member of the FDIC and an equal housing lender. For more information, visit the bank's website at www.grasshopper.bank or follow on LinkedIn and Twitter. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlock are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Dana, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to uh, our conversation. I mean, it's you and I were talking about this right before we started. It's been 17 years since you started Graycroft. We definitely want to spend a lot of time how you've been able to build such a lasting firm. But let's go back to the origin story. What led up to starting Graycroft? What did you see as the gap? And maybe describe those early days. The biggest sort of light bulb for me that went off was just the realization that venture capital would exist everywhere. You know, wasn't meant to be sort of held captive in Silicon Valley forever. I spent 10 years in Silicon Valley and I love it. And I learned so much and developed an incredible network and, and, you know, sort of pattern recognition and all sorts of wonderful things. But uh, in 2005, I started spending time in, in Los Angeles because I was part of a um, video search startup and it just, seen all of the things that were happening in the media industry. This was kind of like right around the time of YouTube. And all of a sudden it just occurred to me that Silicon Valley wasn't the primary market anymore. The, the you know markets that were being disrupted by technology were all markets. And uh, so it made sense to me that venture capital, you know, would and should exist in all of these other markets, given that uh, at the early stage, there's certainly more handholding and, and a, a need to have things being sort of local. I think about 2005, this is pre-iPhone, pre-smartphones, pre-obviously GFC even. And even in 2012, I, mean, I spent some time in LA, I was meeting with some uh, investors. And I remember having an investor dinner, there was like 10 of us, and it was a really small group. And it was still early in LA. 
were there certain things that you're, you had looked at in LA and said, okay, this is an area that really has true potential as a tech hub. What were some of the markers that you saw that led you to say, okay, we're going to create an investment firm that's going to invest out of Silicon Valley, but yet still be able to capture these outliers? The biggest thing for me in LA, and you know, we started in LA and New York, so the two biggest cities in the country were sort of logical that that those would be two markets that would certainly have a lot of opportunities. And 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 just going back for a second, I mean, I think if you you mentioned there was no iPhone, no smartphone, but there was you know the early days of cloud computing and open source software, and I think it was becoming pretty clear that people could create things from anywhere. And then if you think about Los Angeles, I'll just stick with Los Angeles because that's where I am. But, you know, I think New York had similar characteristics in different areas. Los Angeles is home to really incredible creative ideas. I mean, the Walt Disney Company was a startup at one point. Right. <laughs> and, as, you know, when you think about just sort of the, the creativity and idea generation and just an incredibly entrepreneurial group of people the creative industry is that. So that was something like a light, and again, I shouldn't overuse that term, but it was sort of another light bulb moment for me where I was like, huh, while they're creating different things and they're creating, you know, maybe it's a TV show or, you know, a movie and it's sort of a shorter time frame, and you don't have the opportunity to pivot because once a show's out, it's out. It, you know, a lot of the process was similar. And so, you know, it just really, again, it, it felt very ripe for, for that. And, and at that time, I mean, there were, there had been, and this, and this is what we look for in a lot of markets, by the way, that we go to invest in, there had been some early successes with MySpace was sort of in the midst of that overture, right? Started here in LA, you know, then was acquired by Yahoo, uh, applied semantic, which was, you know, really ultimately acquired by Google and became essentially AdWords. And so you, you have, I mean, there's a, there's a very um, technical and entrepreneurial community that had sort of fits and starts, but it felt to me like given how much disruption was sort of coming to the media industry, Netflix in its early days, YouTube, et cetera, that it was the time. And certainly, you know, 15, 16 years later, it's proven to be true. Both LA and, and New York are massive areas of company formation, investment, but at the time, it was still very early. And I do want to go back to, you have this thesis. Ultimately, you have to raise capital behind this thesis. And I do recall, at least from my the lens that I sat within, you know, a lot of people doubted those areas outside of Silicon Valley. The prevailing thought was you have to be a Silicon Valley company to acquire talent to build these category-defining companies. But you and Ian, your co-founder, LA... New York, still early, you're right about cloud computing, making starting a company so much cheaper, but those areas were still in their infancy. How did you, you know, raise that first fund and get people to believe in the hypothesis? Our third co-founder was Alan Patrickoff, who is still our chairman emeritus and, um, you know, is, is, had started Apex Partners um, prior to co-founding Greycroft with us. And we really... The, our first fund we, we sort of talked about is almost our test fund, and we raised it almost entirely from individuals. Uh, so people we knew, people that would back us and sort of trusted us and allowed us to really prove out what we saw as our thesis. And, and we were fortunate in that while the outcomes weren't huge, we actually had some 
early wins. And, um, and that was, you know, I think the timing was right in the areas that we were focused on at that time, digital media. And so we actually almost entirely avoided the J curve with our first fund, which is pretty unusual. And it was because, you know, we had some early exits and quick markups. And so it was clear that we were in the right area, which did enable us to go out and raise our first institutional fund, which would have been great, except for that it was in 2009. (laughs) Right. Which, of course, probably over the last 20 years was the worst time to raise a fund. In a longer you run a firm, the more inflection points you're going to have within the firm, right? Both positive and areas of challenge. Talk a little bit about 2009. Because I feel like that was still early in the New York, the growth of New York, certainly LA. What did you experience during that time? Because I, I know there's a lot of managers listening right now and facing what I think is likely the hardest fundraising time really since 2009. Anybody who has started anything will relate to what I'm about to say, which is when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're starting something, you really don't think about the climate that you're in. You're so focused on doing it. I mean, it was hard, but it never occurred to me that we weren't going to do it. You know, we were just going to keep marching through it until we finished. And so, you know, yes, it was extremely challenging. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, we had hundreds of first meetings and, you know, were turned down by the vast majority, but, you know, I mean, look, I think it's the best thing that you can go through. And I actually think for anybody starting now, even though it's hard, I mean, you really, you do learn what you have. It is a forcing function as to how much do you believe, how much do you really want to do what you're doing? I mean, and and again, like if you're really in it for the right reasons and it is, I mean, just what you're meant to be doing, you'll, you'll get through it and you'll do it. And, you know, I think we were in many ways, we did everything that people would tell you not to do. We started in two offices you know, at the same time across the country from each other, you know, in our first fund, we had never worked together before. We, I mean, so literally we did kind of everything that people would tell you not to do, which also did not make fundraising easier, but yet it worked. And here we are 17 years later. And I, and I think it's just, you know, really, again, kind of testament to you, you know, listening to advice and input, but also having your own lens and, you know, really having, having your, you know, a unique perspective. And I think that's really benefited us as a firm and, you know, sort of our origin story, I think while it had challenges has ultimately really benefited us because being essentially remote from day one our communication is off the charts. We all talk all the time, you know, really, and so much more than I talked to my partners who might, you know, who were like next door to me when I was you know, in Silicon Valley and, you know, where everybody was in one office. So it's, you know, I mean, I think it's like anything you sort of learn from and turn any sort of like challenges into, into, you know, opportunities or benefits. You mentioned a couple of things that I, I'd love to double click on and the degree of difficulty of raising when you're going after markets that historically have not been viewed as tier one, Silicon Valley was still, you know, the area. And then having a firm where you have partners that haven't invested together before, and then also are in different offices, those were all things that most LPs would not necessarily look at as an investable idea early on, at least until things were proven out. What were some of the things that you did in the early days to address some of those inherent challenges of being in different areas, creating the communication layer where you have trust between the three of you 
sitting in different places. I'd love to hear that because right now it's commonplace where partners are sitting in different areas, some of it forced by COVID, of course, but it's still a challenge. So I'd love to hear the early days of what worked and what allowed you to create that foundation. We, we really, out of necessity, developed just an obsessive culture regarding communication, both written and oral. I mean, so, you know, we call each other all the time. And that sounds, I mean, it's funny. I feel like people don't talk on the phone as much. You know, we do. We talk on the phone all the time. And I think there's something to that, you know, really not just texting, not just slacking, not just emailing, whatever, but actually hearing each other's voices and, and you know, seeing, you know, each other on video, but really talking and, 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 and also written communication though. And I think the written communication is a huge, huge point because one thing that we would do and, you know, I'm afraid that we've gotten away from a little bit and we're bringing, we're, we're kind of bringing it back, but is anytime that somebody would have a meeting, I mean, literally a meeting with a company or go to a conference or, you know, have just a, an interesting lunch or anything, we would send notes to each other about. So there was just this kind of rich database and, you know, of, of all of this information that we were just sort of collectively gathering. And then also through that sort of learning each, each other's, you know, sort of interpretations of things, like how do you hear something and what does that mean to you? And so I think that accelerated kind of our learning curve of each other, of working together. But it was, you know, look, it wasn't easy. And I think that presenting that to LPs and kind of how, you know, how you articulate the benefits of some of these things, because they sound like little micro things, but it's like all in the micro that actually, I think you do build a great foundation, really, you know, stable foundation that can scale and, and last for generations. But you know, it's, it's interesting. Sorry. It just made me think of during that time, during the fundraising, I also went through kind of a personal inflection point. I, I actually became pregnant with my first son. It was another moment where you really, I mean, I was so worried at that time, frankly, that it would give people a reason to say no, which I'm very grateful because I think that we're past that. I mean, I, I do think we're past that as an industry. Um, we still have a lot of work to do, but, but when I, you know, really had to sort of look deep in myself and say like, Am I going to change? Do I believe? Like, am I going to keep going? Is this something, you know, should I really be concerned about it? Because I was kind of asking myself those questions and it made me, it just gave me so much complete conviction that I wouldn't change and that this is what I wanted to do. And that, you know, and, you know, now again, it's like 15 years later from that, two kids and a really wonderful, rich life of, of sort of doing both things. But it definitely, for me, um, was a moment in time when it kind of inspired me to think more about how I could make sure that other women, you know, help sort of pave that path for other women and, and be cognizant of the fact that other people were going to be thinking the same way I was and just always be you know, sort of communicating about it and not, not have to sort of hide behind anything or just have open conversations about it. It's like, yeah, I'm pregnant and I'm going to have a kid and I'm going to keep working. <laughs> like there's nothing's going to change. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And I do hope that we're, we're, we're certainly past that. And, you know, the industry still is very uneven when it comes to gender balance, when it comes to ethnical balance and things have improved, particularly with the emerging managers. We're seeing much more diversity within those ranks. I've looked at your background and then, of course, Alan and Ian, and you all had very different sort of backgrounds. You brought something very unique to the table. How important, just because we're on the on the topic of diversity in general, 
How important do you think it is for a partnership to be truly diverse when it comes to backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic, gender, ethnicity? How did that help in the early days? And how has that helped with investment outcomes? Well, I think it's extremely important. And and for us as a firm, it's extremely important because it's very, very um, much who we are. I mean, when we started, we, we sort of laughed because we had diversity in terms of, you know, gender, age, experience, um, you know, sort of where we each grew. You know, Alan grew up in New York City. I mean, he barely left New York his entire life. <laughs> His entire life. I grew up in Seattle and have like lived West Coast basically my whole life. And Ian grew up in Ohio, in Akron, Ohio. And so I think having these very different life experiences and sort of how you grow up and the communities that you grow up in and gave us such great perspective and then having respect for each other and, and what those opinions bring. And so that's something that's just so deeply ingrained in our firm and in our culture, which is not diversity for diversity's sake, diversity, because having those different opinions is going to provide you with an edge. It's going to give you a different lens on something that, you know, a group of people who all have come from the same exact background and same exact, you know, sort of experience set and life experience are not going to see. And so, you know, I think for us, it's manifested in us seeing really interesting opportunities. Uh, one example, um, you know, for us is, is, you know, businesses like Bumble, where it was kind of from the woman's perspective and really understanding why that was important and deeply important. And it's not just me. We have a lot of, you know, other female partners and, you know, and team members and really being able to sort of understand that at a level that, you know, I think, you know, in venture is important, right? Because you see the numbers and the data, but to really intuit that and really understand it at that level. And then on the other side, um, another example, which is kind of a funny one, is uh, we have a great company called Fetch Rewards which is essentially a mobile rewards platform, but it's in kind of a couponing, almost like a couponing business. Incredible business. It was founded in, uh, in Wisconsin and it's very much a mass market product. I mean, incredibly mass market. And it's funny, Ian from day one was like, I get this every, like, this is something that every single person that I know, you know, from growing up, like everybody would use. And he loved it and it's gamified and it's, and it was so funny. And, and then again, having the respect for that and really understanding that person's perspective and the value is what makes, um, you know, really is, is, is what sort of unlocks the value of of diversity. And, and this was something that you created really from day one with, you know, the partnership at the beginning, the three of you coming from such different walks of life with different life experiences. And now it's really carried on to now a team that's, you know, 60 people, which is extraordinary growth. And, and I do want to get into really the growth of the team, the different components of the team, how you manage it. But first, obviously, when you add so many people, you have a cultural foundation that you've built and you're hiring people through a lens of what is the Graycroft way, what's important. So I'd love to hear from you, like, as you bring on people, what traits and characteristics have you indexed heavily on when you do bring somebody on? You know, and if you were to force rank those things, what do you look for as you add somebody of any sort of function, whether it's investing or non-investing? Well, there are two things that sort of come to mind for me. And one is, I think, pretty universal to venture, which is just innate curiosity. 
I mean, I don't think that there's a person that works in venture that is not innately curious or there shouldn't be <laughs> and just truly wanting to understand how the world works and being, you know, just always wanting to sort of un- uncover that next card and that next card. But the other, which you might not always hear is, um, you know, for, for sort of kindness and people can confuse the concept of being kind for being soft or, you know, not making her decisions, but it's actually the opposite. You know, it really is having hard conversations. That is the ultimate kindness, right. And, and being empathetic. And I think those are two things. And, and, and that, you know, again, naturally those two characteristics naturally lend themselves to helping to create a culture that is very open and that is really sort of inclusive in terms of wanting to hear all people's perspectives. So one thing that we've done for really for, I don't know, I mean, I can't even remember where we started now, probably over a decade. Um, but we have a voting app that we use, which as soon as some, as soon as a company presents, um, before we have any conversation as a group, every single person in the room votes and it's not voting like, Oh, you know, you're off the island. It's, 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 really just to get everybody's thoughts out and and make sure that everybody's voice is heard from the most extroverted, um, you know, to the most introverted, because you never know where the best perspective or question is going to come from. Yeah. I want to go back to that for in in a minute, but before we do that, you mentioned two things, basically innate curiosity. And then of course, being kind, those are two things that are very tough to interview for at least get an understanding if somebody is really those things. And we talk about the same thing within our company. Intellectual curiosity is one of the most important things we think that lead to real long-term success for a person, for a company. What are some of the things you do from an interviewing standpoint that help you suss out those things on whether a candidate truly has those two core components? There's some things, I mean, on the investment team, we, uh, you know, we do do case studies and uh, it sounds, that sounds very consulting firm, but it's actually incredible how valuable it is to do a case study because you see, especially for early stage venture, right? I mean, there's such a range of the, the way that people will treat a, a, a sort of a reviewing a company. And there are the obvious things, of course, you know, it's like, are you analyzing the market and what do you look at? You know, there's the, the, they're the, the sort of quantifiable things that everybody does and, and, and they should do. <laughs> but then there's the, you can see that curiosity where they're like going the extra mile. I mean, they're looking, they're, they're kind of asking the, the, the next level question, the question behind the question, you know? And I mean, and it's so funny, but we, we also, as a group, I mean, even for associate hires, I mean, our whole team will sit in on these case studies and it becomes so obvious who the person is that's going to that extra mile. And again, not, not just from like a pure work, but just their, intellect, the level of intellectual curiosity, um, and thinking differently. And then the kind piece, I mean, and that is more, you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's a softer thing to try and, you know, sort of measure for, but I think it's also in the analysis in terms of like, are they actually looking at the kinds of, you know, of the team that's underlying it and what their backgrounds are and what their motivations might be. And, you know, really, again, you, you can see some of it in that analysis, but it's just spending time. And it's part of the EQ aspect of it to pair with IQ. I feel like within this industry, there's a lot of very smart people. And then when you pair it with strong EQ, of course, then you have this great opportunity for somebody to be really a force multiplier. And we've seen that, you know, throughout firms, but let's talk a little bit about the investing side. And I want to go get into the entire team, which will, 
you have a large non-investing team. But on the investing team, you mentioned this voting application you you have so that everybody truly has a voice. Their their point of view is not ignored and it's part of the, you know, the collective voice. A lot of firms over time have struggled where you have two or three partners that start the firm. You add partners throughout the uh, the journey, but it ultimately it's still founder driven where decision making is often deferred to the partners where the founding partners have the biggest voice. How do you create it where you create this safe space where not only do you bring in partners, but they feel emboldened that their their voice is actually going to be heard and is going to carry weight in terms of making decisions for Gray, Graycroft as a firm? I mean, it's a great question. And I think it's why so many firms um, struggle with making sort of the generational changes. And in some ways, because we started literally like with Alan, when he was 72, or I can't, you know, I mean, it was, there was sort of almost like a a succession built into our our founding. And so we really, I mean, I think it's, it's why um, even from the earliest days, I mean, the associates on our team, like I had an intern here in LA. I mean, we, we wanted to hear their voices. We need, you know, we sort of really, and, and again, it was built in because, I mean, Ian was just graduating business school when we started. Alan was 72. I was somewhere between them closer to Ian than Alan, but, <laughs> but, and so it, it was critical that, that we really listened to each other's voices and took, took them, it sort of weighed them equally. I mean, cause, cause we really, we had to, you know, we sort of had to depend on each other and we brought on two partners early on one Mark Trebek out here in, in LA and, and one John Elton in New York. And we knew them both well. And, you know, Mark and I had had, um, had known each other. We had worked on a couple of, you know, deals together and he had spent time in Silicon Valley and then moved to LA sort of similar to me. So we kind of really, I think had a similar lens on the, quality bar that we needed to have from kind of our Silicon Valley days, but also sort of the interesting opportunity set that existed in LA. And then in, in New York with John, Ian had worked closely with him. We had, a, there was a level of trust and, and sort of work, you know, ha- having worked together on that. Almost everybody else that we've brought on the team, we've really built up from, you know, it's been really an apprenticeship model. So majority of our other partners are, were interns with us or, you know, joined us as senior associates right out of business school. There's just a trust that's built over time and, and, and just a really innate understanding. And then further, we have kind of segmented into verticals um, that each you know, partner almost sort of kind of quote unquote, like runs their business. And it's not because we have want to have a bunch of fiefdoms. It's, it's really to your point, like where people do feel empowered and they do, you know, they are able to make decisions. And frankly, that's to be competitive, to be able to compete with boutique firms that are solely focused on fintech. It's like, okay, we have our fintech team that's, that can go in and go toe to toe with a fintech specialized firm, because that's all that this group is thinking about. Right. And, and, and they own those decisions and they, you know, so while they have input from all of us and there's really, you know, I think a, a huge benefit from kind of having the um, multiple verticals where you can see things around the corner that maybe you wouldn't have from not being involved in, in multiple verticals, but you can, you do own your decisions. It's, you know, look, and, and I will also say that nothing is perfect and, and we're constantly evolving and iterating just like any business. You cannot be static. 
Yeah. And something that's challenged a lot of firms, and, and this goes back well into the uh, the history of venture where you have a group of partners that are investing one pool of capital. In the past, one of the things that really hurt a lot of firms is people playing the attribution game. I vote for your deal, you vote for my deal. And it's really about building my attribution versus doing, in this case, a great crop deal. You have multiple of these verticals, right? Which each vertical has a group of partners that's making a decision based on investments there. How do you ensure that you're, you know, you mentioned the word fiefdom, that there aren't these fiefdoms and that people are really looking to build the best overall Graycroft fund portfolio versus really looking to build attribution and push deals within their vertical? For me, this is a, it's a critical point because I lived through in Silicon Valley, 1998 to 2004, right? So, so I saw the political games played to the extreme. I swore that I would like my firm would not do that. (laughs) We would not. And so that's what I mean when I say we are constantly editing and like iterating to make sure that that doesn't happen because that that's how firm. I mean, that is literally how really bad decision-making happens when people start, you know, really like focusing more on my deal versus is this the best deal that we should be doing as a firm? And, and so some of that is, you know, the way economics, I mean, we actually have partners have carry across both vehicles equally, even though, you know, we have two separate funds. So there's no, there's never a question about, oh, that should go in mine or that should go in mine. You know, it's, we're all in this together. And that is very clear. And so decisions like first and foremost are sort of made from that perspective. And we all want to win and we all, you know, so it's sort of, I mean, I I think that incentives go a long way, but you have to be careful because there's always creep, you know, there's always things that happen. So you can't, again, it's just, there's no, there's no perfect way. You just have to be watching to see if you see some of that creep starting to happen and, you know, okay, now we're working in these verticals. What are we missing? How do we need to change things from a process standpoint to make sure that we are communicating more, that we are getting the benefit of the whole firm, even though, you know, we're, we're moving quickly in these verticals. Yeah. And, and I do think it, it's, it's a pairing of the economic incentives that you provide or non-economic incentives, but it's also the culture that's embedded in terms of how you operate as a partnership, which you mentioned, many of the people have started off as interns or associates and then have grown up in the culture. So it's a little bit easier to manage. Beyond that, though, I know your structure has not only the, the various verticals that you focus on, but different geographies. You have a growth fund that will do some follow-on investing in some of your existing early-stage companies. And a question that I'd like to maybe ask is really an extension of my last question is for those follow-on decisions that you're making out of an opportunity fund or a growth fund, how do you remove the bias? Because as a partner that's carried a company from series A to B and has performed pretty well, I'm more likely to want it to go into the growth fund to continue to back that entrepreneur. Is decision-making different when you do follow-ons? Within the construct of the opportunity or growth fund, how do you think about decision making on those those type of opportunities for existing versus net new? So always, when we're looking at a follow on, whether it's you know a follow on still within the early stage pool of capital or it's the growth fund, looking at one of our early stage funds portfolio companies, it is a new underwriting. 
So we do have, you know, a very, and, and, and especially at the growth stage, we have a very rigorous analysis that every single company goes through the same, same, whether it's one of our companies or an outside company, same analysis is done and then comped to the closest comps that we have, right. For private companies, but also, you know, public companies. And we really do say that it has to be sort of best idea, right. It, it needs to be best idea. And I will say like that is, it is hard. It's, it's hard because definitely, like you said, you have the person in the firm who loves the company I mean, they, you know, but the growth fund team also is responsible for, again, investing in the best ideas. And so it's sort of, and early stage team has carry in the growth vehicle. So they want best ideas too. So it's really, there is no perfect in this. Um, but I think we do everything that we can to try to sort of eliminate that bias and, um, and, and try to just hold every, you know, every company at the same standard. And also, I mean, this is part of the benefit of kind of having worked together for, for you know, quite a while and, and having that sort of culture of, of, you know, apprenticeship is knowing what, you know, what somebody's saying and knowing, you know, if some, somebody's pushing something really hard, you know, that might be Ian gets really excited about more than Mark does, or, you know what I mean? Sort of knowing how to calibrate their excitement or their enthusiasm. But it's, I mean, I will say this is, I mean, it is the, the, you know, it is a tricky thing because you do fall in love with your companies. And it, and it gets down to this concept of, there's always going to be a level of civil discourse that is actually healthy within a partnership, but it can also create unusual or uncomfortable dynamics sometimes. How do you think about conflict management when these things invariably come up? We have a really open um, culture in terms of communication. I mean, I think we've, we, and we work hard at it. It's, it's like, you're, you know, if there's something you're not saying, you're obligated to say it. You need, you, you really, you know, you can't hold anything back. That does come, you know, come back to just having a, a, a culture that really is very open, expects communication, expects people to express their ideas, their opinions, um, and, and, and provides complete support for it. And, and, you know, it's little things that you do all the time and day to day, but it's also big things. I mean, we do an offsite with the entire team every year together for three days. And as we've grown every year, we're like, oh, are we too big now? Are you too, you know, but, but there's so much value to doing it because people spend time with people that they don't spend time with every day. You're sort of, you know, again, forced to build trust. And it's not even in doing like trust fall exercises. It's just literally spending time together. And we've done it. I mean, every year since the inception of the firm, um, I think, except for 2021, you know, it's a critical part of our culture. And, and as we think about c- culture and just team building, I, I remember the old days of venture, you know, 20 years ago, everybody was an investment partner and folks that were non-investment partners were viewed as a cost center, whether it be finance, ops, there was no platform teams at the time that really became popular. I think when Andreessen introduced it at a grand scale, you know, back in 2009. But how do you think about constructing the team? Because you have a lot of non-investing partners, people that work in platform, large operations, large IR team. Why did you go that direction? And how is that, you know, in your mind really benefited the growth of not only Graycroft, but really for the benefit of the underlying portfolio companies? First and foremost, the, the, we sort of think through the lens of what can we do to 
benefit our companies, right? Like where's, where can we generate alpha? Where can we, you know, where can we post investment actually really drive um, superior outcomes? And so that's something that we're always looking at and thinking about and, and doing it in a way that's, you know, again, authentic to us and where we can bring something that's differentiated to the, to the table. And so that's how we think about whether you call it platform or, you know, value add services, tech data science, sort of all, all of that. The other piece is a little bit out of necessity. I mean, we have a relatively large portfolio relative to our AUM. And so we have, a, you know, we've had to build a, a pretty decent size, you know, sort of operations and finance and legal team. And, and, you know, the reality with that is we've always invested for building a firm. We've always invested for the long term. Like our, you know, we never, we, and, and, you know, we always talk about this openly, like our view is that we're building a generation firm. I mean, I, you know, that the Greg Croft should outlive, you know, Ian and myself and, and, you know, hopefully the next generation after that. And so, it's not, we're not going crazy. We're not going and, you know, hiring hundreds of people everywhere, but we, we do like to be very thoughtfully and methodically sort of building ahead of where we are so that we can, you know, sort of scale to that next point. And then also thoughtfully investing in technology and data and, you know, infrastructure where we can automate things too, so that we can, you know, again, sort of invest in people in places where it can be most beneficial to have sort of that hands-on one-to-one, but then anywhere where we can, you know, automate something and provide more of a one-to-many, we'll do that too. So when, when you think about any company that you're investing in, the bigger you get, the more there is around people management, often bureaucracy starts to creep in. How do you remain nimble as you were back in 2005 with a team of 60, with so many portfolio companies? I just love to hear some of the the methodology of how do you manage such a large group, but yet still stay incredibly nimble to be able to service the uh, the entrepreneurs and the LPs. It is just constant work. It's I mean it's con- it's just in in constant iteration. I mean I feel like I'm a, like it's a broken record and it's not exciting and it's not you know but it literally is just constant iteration, having your ear to the ground, you know hiring, you know, trusted people. We have hired really incredible, I'd say sort of like professional managers um, that oversee different aspects of the business because I mean, Ian and I are both investors first, you know? And so I think recognizing our deficiencies, we're not, you know, we aren't skilled managers who have, you know, managed teams of thousands of people. And so just hiring really deliberately for people who can, um, you know, sort of take, things off of our plates in, in those areas. So, you know, we have an incredible head of um, people and, and talent and he's both, you know, sort of internally facing, but also works with our portfolio companies. And that's the benefit, like really incredible people on our management team who, you know, they come here, even though we're smaller than what they had done before as an organization, they get the benefit of also getting to work closely with portfolio companies. And so I think that's really um, where you can, you know, sort of get, outsized talent relative to the scale of, of the company. I want to shift a little bit to a couple of last questions I have. One is more macro in, in nature. All of us have benefited within venture, you know, starting from 2009, you mentioned everything moving to the cloud, cloud computing. We also had the, I, the mobile phone. It created this super cycle of really startups and this Cambrian explosion of startups and adoption of technology. We also saw a very friendly macro environment where interest rates from March of 2008 to 22 were effectively zero. All right. So you had this 
incredible tailwind. On top of that, you had four rounds of quantitative easing, and we saw what happened post-May t- May 2020. Now we're in a very different environment. Rates have changed. The economic climate's changed. Tell me your bull case for venture going forward relative to what we've seen over the last 13 years. Well, look, I mean, I think one of the most exciting things about venture is that it it out, it does outlive you know cycles right i mean it's it's and and it's actually mostly driven by these huge technical tailwinds and so we talk about cloud computing and 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 open source software i mean those are still massive tailwinds you know we we talk about cloud computing as if it's over i mean we're still at the beginning you know it's so that's still just a huge tailwind and um you know still transforming so many businesses just in that sort of you know instance of of sort of a big technological shift similarly you know with mobile phones and sort of compute power shrinking and the cost of compute power declining and you know so dramatically and and what that enables and you know one of the things that that has enabled is is obviously this you know sort of incredible major technical shift that we're seeing right now with AI. And so I think it's sort of the tailwind upon tailwind from a technological platform shifts that I think are going to create massive opportunities that that cut across all industries. And, you know, we've been seeing it with, you know, with data and cloud computing and mobile, but the AI tailwind is just on top of that. And I mean, I think the things that are to come, I mean, I really think it's, it's, we're going to live through the most incredible time of our lives. And so, yes, there are headwinds and yes, we're going to deal with a tougher interest rate environment and funds will, you know, funds will be more constrained, but constraint also, you know, creates a lot of entrepreneurship and, and, you know, innovation. So I am extremely bullish and that's not just because I'm a venture capitalist. Yeah, well, you know, it actually reminds me of, of something that we see a lot. I think people tend to conflate the role of innovation and the growth of innovation, which typically falls an S-curve with highly cyclical capital markets. And they say, okay, well, the markets have shifted. And of course, public tech, private tech has taken a beating over the last year. Therefore, technology is bad. Innovation's actually been underestimated over history of time. I'm, I'm actually reading a quote. This is the president of a Michigan savings bank back in 1903. And he says, the automobile is a fad, a novelty. Horses are here to stay. And it reminds me of what I hear oftentimes today, where people predict this untimely death of technology, where we're still very early in the advancement of technology and life sciences. So I totally agree with you. I'll end with the last question of now, let's take a look back the last 17 years of building Graycroft. What do you think you got the most right? And what do you think you got the most wrong? It, w- it was geography. I mean, I mean, I think clearly entrepreneurship is everywhere now. I mean, it's global. It's in every market in the world. I mean, you know, we had a huge outcome in Birmingham, Alabama, and we have a super valuable company in, you know, Lagos, Nigeria. I mean, so I think we got that right. I would say we were early, maybe a little too early, but, but, um, but, uh, but now, you know, the, the world has sort of come to us. So I, you know, I think what we got, we got right and wrong in some ways are sort of the you know opposite sides of the coin, but certainly, um, outside Silicon Valley, I think, right. Although Silicon Valley is still important. I mean, again, I, I, I think Silicon Valley will always be a very important geography, but certainly, um, timing wise, if you could pick things perfectly, we probably would have opened in these markets a little later. Kind of given that I'll add on to the question because I am curious because there are a lot of people that are starting firms right now, even in this climate, of course, the last few years, we've seen 
the proliferation of brand new firms, what piece of advice would you give to somebody that's starting a firm in what they need to think about in creating a lasting franchise? Thinking about the the firm piece and not just the fund piece. Because, you know, I think when most people launch funds, they sort of effectively, it's like launching, they're launching a product instead of a company. So I'd say, think about the company or think about the firm, not just the fund. Yeah, it's a great piece of advice and something that I think people underestimate in terms of the actual firm building and all the things that are not investing that go into building a long-term firm. So thank you for joining us today. Congratulations on being able to build a firm now that's almost two decades old and is still in in many ways in the infancy of what the long-term story of Greycroft will be. But Dana, this was this was great. This was a lot of fun. And thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We sure hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dana. To learn more about her or Greycroft, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.